On Gulhani on Politics this week, we reflect on the SNP membership's choice of ranting, gaff-prone Humza Yusuf as their new party leader and our First Minister. In his very first act as leader of his party, he demanded another independence referendum. We take a look at Mr Yusuf's eye-opening appointments to his government. Does the First Minister really believe that appointing a taxpayer-funded nationalist campaigner is governing for all of Scotland. And we have a message for the new First Minister for Higher and Further Education on the urgent need to back Scotland's colleges so more Scots can be trained for the workplace. So we're hoping that uh, we can persuade the government uh, and, the, and, and Holyrood to really get behind that because that actually will play a major part in the net zero transition. The self-styled first advisor is now in charge of Scotland's government. SNP members selected Holyrood's most incompetent minister to lead their party. Well, only just. In the second round of voting, Humza secured 52.1% of the vote, rival Kate Forbes 47.9%. But those were just the votes cast. Two-thirds of the membership of the SNP did not vote for Humza Yusuf. So Humza was sworn in as First Minister, Keeper of the Great Seal of Scotland, and MSPs were clapping like seals on his side of SNP's divided ranks when Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross reminded Parliament of Humza Yusuf's priorities. He has said that every election should be about independence. He has proclaimed himself to be the first activist of the nationalist movement. And yesterday, in his very first act as leader of his party, he demanded another independence referendum from the UK government. Thank you. Thank you. Let's hear Mr Ross. An image, if you needed it, that the nationalists have the wrong priorities for this country. Hapless Humza Yusuf is not only the worst health secretary in the history of devolved government, his undignified record includes spells as an ill-fated transport secretary who drove a car without insurance. He was also the power-obsessed justice secretary who thought heated discussions over dinner at home should be treated as hate crimes. Humza Yusuf, with little experience outside of politics, is an SNP princeling. He was employed as an SNP office assistant before being elected as MSP in 2011. And Humza has been well mentored for the top job, both by Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon. So what does Humza stand for politically? Well, the SNP princeling wants to scrap the monarchy. He regards the UK government as a foreign power and he dreams of establishing Scotland as an independent republic. With regret, under Humza... Expect the days of SNP failures to continue as he obsesses over breaking up the United Kingdom. Scotland's First Minister, Humza Yusuf, has decided on his new look government lineup. Well, he actually retained key figures from Nicola Sturgeon's governments, the ones that supported him during his leadership campaign and he kept the two green MSPs as ministers. He's not in cabinet, yet if we look closely at Humza Yusuf's first cabinet, we can actually see green leaders listening in. 
He also didn't keep the best talent from the Sturgeon years, including Kate Forbes, who wouldn't accept a demotion, and her supporter, Ivan McKee, the only former minister who knew how to run a business. The First Minister and Deputy First Minister are both failed former health secretaries, and their lineup of cabinet secretaries and minister has been described as a B-list of politicians. But what a B-list! Of the 64 SNP MSPs, 26 are now ministers. 26. And the makeup of Humza Yusuf government reflects his priorities. Douglas Ross again. This is the largest government since devolution, with more ministers than ever before. But key ministerial posts relating to social security and tourism were abolished. Yet a new minister for independence was created. Does the First Minister really believe that appointing a taxpayer-funded nationalist campaigner is governing for all of Scotland? Let that sink in. Tourism accounts for 7% of employment in Scotland and 5% of Scotland's GDP. Yet Humza Yusuf, in all his wisdom, thinks this industry doesn't need his attention. And as a flavour of what to expect during his time in office, however long that might be, Humza Yusuf has stated there will be no relaxation of the tax burden on higher earners. There's no disguising the fact that Scotland now has an anti-business, anti-growth First Minister. The new Cabinet Secretary for Higher and Further Education, Graham Day, should listen carefully. Scotland needs to train and upskill its workforce. This is particularly the case in health and social care. Training programmes at our colleges or further education provide the essential link between people and employers. Yet, they don't receive the level of support that universities enjoy. To find out more, I visited the City of Glasgow College and its simulated hospital ward training suite where I spoke to college principal Paul Little and Vanessa Telfer, Associate Dean of Health and Early Years. City of Glasgow College, it is huge. The building is massive, but we're here talking about healthcare in your healthcare suite. Tell me a little bit more about what you've got going on here. Well, City of Glasgow College is Scotland's super college, so it's got 40,000 students and we teach some 2,000 programmes. And uh, just between 30 to 40 of those would be health and care and social services uh, and childcare. And we're meeting here this morning in our healthcare simulation suite because at City of Glasgow College we have 1,000 learning spaces where we try to engage in experiential learning, real hands-on learning, real practical learning, real industry-based learning, so that our students can leave us work ready. So each year we have a pipeline of 8,000 graduates, technical and professional, or as I like to call them nowadays because of the advent of digital, technological and professional graduates. And they will leave us and work in, in this particular setting, in um, healthcare settings, in, in dental settings, in social service settings, and in particular in care settings. Uh, and uh, we train them to higher national levels, but we've got entry level courses. But as an institution, we have, as a powerhouse of technological skills, we have some 20 degrees and some 400 higher national diplomas. And, and Vanessa, so could you give us a flavour? We, we heard a few examples of the areas, mm -hmm. but could you give us a flavour of, 
of some of the practical things that you're, you're teaching? Yes, absolutely. So we have upwards of 400 students in health, social care and early years, so care generally. Within this area that you're in right now, we would use it for clinical skills. So preparing HNC healthcare practice in the main to go out into the local hospitals on placement. They, they go prepared for as much as you can be for a hospital environment, prepared to be able to work and support those uh, nurses that are there already. And we would also use this space as well as the spaces at either side of this room for moving and assisting for all our health and social care students prior to placement and a necessary part of their course. Um, they would they would do that within this environment and the other two rooms that we have. I mean, so I can, I can see you've got a hoist here. Mm -hmm. So so you know you're teaching your students yeah moving and handling and some real practical skills. Absolutely, and we try and work with our placement providers, our own placement providers, to ensure that the equipment we have in here reflects the equipment they have there. So again, students are going out with the knowledge of the actual uh, equipment they have. But the wider element of that is the health and safety and the, their health and safety for themselves, as well as the young people uh, that they're caring for, the older adults that they're caring for, the people that they will be looking after when they finish. Yeah, and actually, one of the things that caught my eye uh, was the, the, the pretend person <laughs> that we have over there in the corner. But the reason it caught my eye was because he's black. Mm -hmm. Now, that's important. Do you tell us why that, that's important? Is it, is it a, a political correctness thing gone mad or is, is there actually something behind it? <laughs> when we researched what we wanted in this room, as well as reflecting the reality of what's, what's out there, we wanted to ensure that our students were as prepared as you can be and medical treatments, blood taking for example, um, other elements are different depending on your ethnicity. So it was to ensure that as much as we could, we could give students that rounded experience so that maybe they didn't have the shock that um, it may be different and more difficult at times to, um, to get blood from our patient here as, a, as our patient there. Yeah, and you're right because actually uh, one of the things that I found difficult and the first time I started doing it was looking at different skin types. And I remember looking at this guy who'd come in, he's, he's a black guy, and I couldn't see the veins. And I thought, oh my God, what, what, what to do? And, and that's just because of the pr practicalities of what I learned on, which was uh, a, a pale mm -hmm. colour. I think the other thing, Sandish, is that City of Glasgow College is a world-class institution. So we operate across 26 countries, and we've got some 150 different nationalities of students at the college. So we seek to be inclusive in our overall approach and we seek to be um, industry standard. So clearly the very specialist uh, niche challenges that we have with different ethnicities, we try to reflect that right across the 2000 programmes and, and we support some 200 industry sectors. And we want each of those industry sectors to be as inclusive and diverse uh, as, as possible. And it's interesting you talked about 26 different countries yeah. and I know India was one of the countries yeah. and it's close to my heart yes, so indeed. what are you doing in India? Well we've been working with industry for well over 30 years in fact we set up India's first um, national maritime college we designed it and we supported that and we continue to support that so at the minute we support four centers in India and the students largely learning merchant navy training will start their studies in Pune and Chennai and, and Mumbai uh, and then progress to the City of Glasgow College where they will finish off 
either as a third engineer or indeed um, if they've been at sea, continue their studies and become even a ship's captain or indeed a chief engineer. Uh, and we're actually continuing to support that and extend that to other curriculum areas. Um, but at the minute, uh, the largest concern in India is for maritime training. But elsewhere around the world, we do logistics training, we do care training, you know, we do creative industries, um, a whole range of different areas. And that collaborative approach is strong for us because you're bringing students across here. Yes, we're bringing students across uh, and put them in our halls of residence. But more importantly than that, we're adding to the skill set of our lecturers here. Uh, shipping is a global industry and, you know, as a, as a global player ourselves, we understand what some of those concerns are. Um, logistics would be the same, e-commerce would be the same. But clearly, uh, it is an opportunity for two or three years for students to come from India, learn about uh, their subject, but also learn about Scottish culture and learn about the great city of Glasgow. Absolutely, and our, our accent here as well. Indeed, we to, we which we to teach it. them about too. <laughs> and Vincent, coming back to, mm -hmm. to help, one of the, the, the real key drivers that I think is important is we upskill people, we have life skills, uh, and that doesn't matter where you are in your career, but people get to, yeah. to improve continuously. Is that something that you offer here? Absolutely, absolutely. We have a, a central core of courses that have been here for, for a long time. What we have improved on in recent years, particularly um, in the pandemic and, and, and following, is the pathways. We now have a stronger pathway into courses and a stronger pathway out. One of our key drivers is that exact thing you've described, is about ensuring that people have what they need to, to do the job, to fill the gaps that we have. Um, this year, for the first time, we have a dedicated HNC healthcare practice for healthcare support workers. And that was a conversation with our placement providers in the NHS to say, this is an area that we have a gap and we're, we're, we can fill that gap. It's been a fantastic class. They're so dedicated, they're so interested and interested um, and they will they will remain in their jobs but they'll come out at the end of this year with a qualification that has just solidified what all that experience they have. Do you have room for expansion and to get more people trained? Yes <laughs> is the short answer um, we have the 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 space to a certain degree we would need investment to build that space further. We, we may need resource investment in terms of staffing. We have the desire to and we certainly have the means to in relation to the, the applications we have. We have far, far, far more applications than we have spaces, which is fantastic. But we would, as a department, would very much like to, to offer more of those applicants spaces. We're 6,300 nurses short. Mm. Our care sector is crying out for more yeah. people to go, and these are all the things that you're able to provide. Yeah. What's the problem? What's going on? Well, there's a couple of challenges. One, I think, um, at the minute, um, there is a capacity issue using the, the existing classrooms, which are about 1,000 classrooms. Um, clearly, you know, we are an institution formed in, uh, in the super campus in 2015-2016 and we're, we're at capacity now. So we're trying to embrace the digital agenda and the blended learning agenda. So during the pandemic, uh, we actually trained individuals in their own home, some 19,000 of those. However, 
given the, the, the practical nature that we're talking about here, it's important that we're in there. I think what we really need right now is some additional funding from the Scottish Government um, and as, you know, to expand the skills infrastructure in Scotland here so that ultimately the skill shortages that you're talking about in care and health and in nursing, um, we see that across a number of other sectors. So this is the time not to cut your funding to colleges, this is the time to expand your funding to colleges and we just, um, you know, once this leadership election's over, we want the politicians to refocus on the jewel in the crown that is the college sector and continue to fund it. And I wrote a report along with my colleague in Edinburgh called the Cumber for Little Report, where we really talked about uh, maybe a rebalancing of some of that funding in the tertiary sector. And we hope that that is also the case, because that in turn will give us the money and funding that we need to support all these industries, because they're all critical. We often, uh, in past few years, we clapped for key workers, but now we have to fund key workers too. So one of the things Scottish Government always say is, well, where are you going to get the money from? Where are you going to get money from? But it, it, it's key that if we want more people, mm. we have to train more people. Exactly. Where are we going to get the money from? Well, uh, at the minute, um, I'm hoping that the Scottish Government find an extra £26 million in the budget that they put that to frontline services and not to transition monies. But I do think that working with industry, industry has a, a role to step up as well uh, in that. And, and certainly colleges have never been more efficient. So, you know, being very dependent on the public purse and working close to the industry, I'm hoping that both of those two key sources step up and support their colleges, not just City of Glasgow, but the 26 colleges, the length and breadth of Scotland. And, and am I right in saying that you have some real innovative solutions and things that you want to do, but you're a bit hamstrung? Yes, I mean, before we were reclassified, we were able to plan and build a £228 million college. And that's what we're in right now. And that's what you're in now, you're one of the two sites. But since reclassification, we can borrow, uh, we can't hold a surplus and we have to go through a whole series of permission levels to, to be entrepreneurial. Um, we have further plans to expand this college and to support the innovation agenda, uh, maybe with a £100 million innovation park to support you know, Glasgow's innovation district, particularly down at the Riverside. So we're hoping that uh, we can persuade the government uh, and, the, and, and Holyrood to really get behind that because that actually will play a major part in the net zero transition, that will play a major part in green shipping, that will play a major part in learning technologies uh, and ed tech, uh, because we're really at the cutting edge of that. Uh, and we're hoping at the heart of that £100 million part will be a new innovation centre. So at the minute, the government spends 1% of its money in college innovation and 99% in university innovation. We're hoping that they rebalance that and then help support that particular innovation part because not only does Glasgow need it, but actually the 200 industry sectors that we're trying to support, including shipbuilding, which is a major renaissance here in Glasgow, will be supported through that innovation centre. So yeah, exciting plans here at the City of Glasgow College. Exciting plans, but we need that funding. We need the, you need the ability to, to put it into action. Well, we need that £26 million released this year, actually before the summer, um, but in addition to that, we need a real commitment to expand funding to college education and to rebalance that. And yes, the purpose and principles review are going to help that, but actually I'm trying to safeguard frontline services now. I've had to release 75 staff through voluntary severance 
I've never needed to do that in the sense, and I'm trying to avoid further voluntary severance. So just right now, in actually a matter of weeks, we really need a, a, a relook at college funding to really help protect frontline services now, but in the medium to longer term, we need a reprioritisation to the skills infrastructure of Scotland. Uh, we have over-celebrated one part of the tertiary and we have underfunded another part. And I think it's just time that that was rebalanced. And we're desperate for skilled people in every sector. So cutting funding for skills, which essentially grow wealth here in Scotland, it doesn't seem to make sense to me. No, and it doesn't make sense to me. And, and if you then compound that by the great resign after the pandemic, where we've got uh, across the UK about a million people economically inactive, then that just puts further pressure on the skill shortage. So we, we have a shortage of people, we have a shortage of skills, we have a shortage of special skills. However, there are powerhouses of skills, upskilling, reskilling, uh, lifetime skilling, like the City of Glasgow College, that actually can be at the forefront to address that and also support a whole range of economic sectors, but they need to be funded. The, the expansion that those colleges will have to pay for specialist equipment, specialist staff, that needs to be publicly funded. So just, just on the, the, the skilling, the reskilling, Vanessa, if I, if I came to you as uh, Greater Glasgow Clyde, for example, and I said, look, we're desperate to get somebody, some people in who can mm -hmm. fulfill this particular role and they need these skills, uh, and we, we need that, by the end of the year. Is that something, are you nimble enough to be able to do that? Absolutely. What What's one of the strengths of further education is that exact thing that, yes, we have our courses, we have the things that run for the year, the two years, the, the programmes that are full time. But what we also have is is the agility to to meet that need, the, the immediate current need of whatever sector, obviously for, for us in this area, it's health and social care. We have partnerships with about 400 care or um, organisations for placements, and that's exactly what we do. We are able to, to, to fill those gaps for the short term, longer term, and we have staff who, many of whom are still in industry, but certainly have come very recently. So we have people ready to ready to do that. It's just a matter of, of finding the space and finding the time that suits that, that sector. And that's one of the things, again, as, as we bring current workers here to reskill, we learn from them. We're learning what it's like there. That's, that's a win-win situation because they're explaining to us what it feels like to use this skill that they're learning in reality. So everybody gains from that. They're gaining, but we're gaining as a, as a faculty and our students are gaining because we're receiving that real life, right now experience of the Glasgow hospital or the care home or the nursery, whatever, whatever sector they're coming from. That was Vanessa Telfer and Paul Little at City of Glasgow College. And that's all from this week's Gulhani in Politics. We've got recess coming up. So thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe. For now, from me, until next time, bye bye.